We have the blessing of being in, in, in the book of John, and I appreciate just some of the encouragements that I've, that I've heard from people. Oh, I'm, I'm glad we're, we're doing John, and me too, me too. It's been a book that I have long wanted to preach, and, uh, and this morning um, I, I, I come into this pulpit with uh, tremendous joy and excitement and much fear and trepidation especially for these first few verses. Actually, this whole prologue, which is such a, a well-known passage in John, and on one hand, you as the preacher want to do it justice. You know it's a familiar passage to many, and um, you think, well, gosh, I, you, know, you want to you wanna find something that nobody else has heard before, uh, but we don't want to add to the Scripture either, right? So... So, no, we, we, we just want to be faithful to the text, and I trust and pray and hope that you will be blessed by um, our time in the Word of God, and especially in this book of John. <clears throat> Let me go ahead and pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for just bringing us together as a church body, a church family to worship and honor and praise and exalt you and your son and your spirit, God. And now we just ask that you will bless our time in your word, that, Lord, you will help me as the preacher to accurately deliver it and with passion and care, and that, Lord, you will give us spirit-empowered ears and and hearts and minds the ability to receive the word that lord we would seek to apply your word and we pray this in your son jesus's name and all god's people said amen the title for today's message from the gospel according to john is jesus on trial that's kind of the overarching um uh theme of the whole book but this is the opening statement the word throughout the history of movies and television and even theater there have been some monumental courtroom scenes and trials haven't there i mean who can forget gregory pecks atticus finch and to kill a mockingbird as he defended the innocence of a black man against an undeserved rape charge in a small 1932 alabama town or henry fonda leading a jury of 12 angry men or a few good men when tom cruise demands of jack nicholson i want the truth to which jack nicholson heatedly replies you can't handle the truth Oh, I was just looking forward to just delivering that line this whole week. <laughs> See, I can't do it in the, you know, in the, in, uh, out there in Hollywood anymore, so I'll do it in here, okay? <clears throat> Life is often stranger than fiction, isn't it? And in the last several decades, we have also witnessed some intense and sometimes bizarre real-life courtroom dramas, such as the trial of Nazi leader and Holocaust organizer Adolf Eichmann, who, uh, which took place in Jerusalem, in Israel, 1961. It was actually the first fully televised trial. Closer to home, who could forget? If the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. The trial of O.J. Simpson, who was found not guilty in criminal court, but guilty in civil court of the deaths of his divorced wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and Ron 
Goldman. Of course, there are many unsolved cases that have been tried through the jury of public opinion. Reality TV loves to present us a case with witnesses and testimony and evidence and then let the viewer decide the outcome. There's even a Broadway musical based on Charles Dickens' unfinished work. It was unfinished due to the author's death called The Mystery of Edwin Drood in which the audience gets to decide who did it and see the rest of the story play out based on their choice. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I in no way am comparing the importance of a book of the Bible to a reality TV show or Broadway musical, the point that I am wanting to make is that like these, the Apostle John, as defense attorney, will present the evidence through witnesses and testimony, including from the defendant himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you, the jurist, will get to decide for yourself who this Jesus really is. But make no mistake. While this trial, from a human perspective, the trial of Jesus, if you will, is at times bizarre, riveting, tragic, heartbreaking, and ultimately joyous, it is truly monumental and is without a doubt, bar none, the most important trial that you will ever bear witness to as its outcome has a direct life or death bearing on your soul. So as we enter, as we enter the courtroom to hear John's opening statement, let me, let me share with you just briefly some of the other players involved. As I mentioned, the defendant is, of course, Jesus with his defense attorney, John. The prosecution would be the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, even the high priest. And again, you are the judge and jury. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Here at the beginning of chapter 1, John's opening statement really amounts to a prologue for the entire book. Now, prologues can be very important. And I remember Pastor John, not too long ago, mentioning the importance of a prologue, which is an introduction to the book as a whole, giving some important background information and context about things like the writing and the story and the characters or the setting. The word uh, comes from the Greek prologos, which means before the word. Now, remember that word logos because we will be coming back to it shortly. A prologue can also help with understanding the themes of a book, or it can, it can set the mood, it can set the tone of the book, and even share some of what to expect from the book. 
Now, author John's prologue, we find here in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And it really breaks down into four themes. We see in his prologue, Jesus being co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. In verses 1 to 3, we see the salvation that he brings as testified by John the Baptist in verses 4 to 8. We see the world's reaction to him in verses 9 to 13. And then we kind of have a a prologue summary in verses 14 to 18. And with that, we are going to kick off by reading the prologue in its entirety, verses 1 to 18. If you are able, I'll rise for the reading of God's word. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This, that was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. This morning, friends, we will only get through the first two verses. We're not going to... These are verses that when, 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 when you, again, see what they say and having read them, you go, we could, we could stop right here after verse 2 and we could be here for probably six months, you know? But that's not going to be the case, all right? These, again, are the prologue. They are the setup for what is to come. They will all be fleshed out much more deeply every chapter as we get to through this marvelous book. But here in these first two verses, you will first be introduced to the Word. The Word. In the beginning was the Word. 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And, and of course, the first question that we would be compelled to ask is, who or what is the Word? Now, the answer is, the Word is Jesus. The Word is Jesus. But how do we know? How do we know? Well, context is what? King. And we're told that this word was there in the beginning with God and even was God. Further on in the text, the word is also described as the light of whom John the Baptist gave testimony to. The word is also then identified as a he and a him as in a person <clears throat> this is better explained than in verse 14 when the word became flesh and dwelt among us signifying a human being he is then identified by name in verse 17 jesus christ but let's get back to jesus as the word here's that greek word that i asked you to remember logos the root word being Lego, not to be confused with Lego building blocks and the Danish meaning play well, not to be confused with Lego my ego or frozen waffles of which I particularly am fond of. Lego means to speak or excuse me, yes, Lego means to speak intelligently and Logos is a noun of the word that is, it means to uh, be intelligently being spoken. So in a basic sense, logos means word. But it has a number of much more nuanced meanings as well, such as speech, utterance, talk, discourse. It can also mean reason, as in what we do as thinking people with brains and spirits to convey speech, but with rationality. In this vein, it can be also a reason. It can be a a cause or an argument. It can even mean to give a reckoning or accounting of something. There's actually another Greek word used for speech, lalia. The difference between the two is that lalia is more about speech as in Talking, making sound, right? Like uh, the peanuts, wah, 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 you know, and that kind of uh, deal. Whereas logos is a word resulting from reason or thought. Then, of course, we have logos here in John 1, 1. And in John 1, 14, where the word became flesh in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, which has the apostle John writing about Jesus as the word of life. So how are we to understand Jesus then as the Logos, the Word? And I believe the answer begins with the Old Testament, of which John frequently quotes from and alludes to. Here in the Old Testament, we see the power and character of God through His Word. I mean, consider the relationship between God's Word and creation. Then God said... Let there be light, and there was light. God spoke, 
the whole of creation into existence by the breath of his word. Psalm 33 and verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Now furthermore, God spoke to his prophets and people with his word. In this, you could say that his word is revelatory. It would reveal. Uh, Genesis 15 and verse 1 has the word of the Lord coming to Abraham and making a covenant with him. In Exodus 24 and verse 3, we see Moses recounting to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, referring, of course, to the Ten Commandments and and many, many more. In 1 Kings 6, verses 11 to 13, the Lord affirmed through his word to Solomon the building of the temple, Solomon's disobedience, God's promise to dwell with the people and to not forsake them. In 1 Samuel 3, and verse 21, God revealed himself to Samuel by his word. The prophet Jeremiah wrote in chapter 1, verse 4, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying... So, this revelatory word of God came to these prophets and others as well. People like Isaiah and Ezekiel, Amos and others. God's word in the Old Testament also provided healing and deliverance. As we see in Psalm 107 verse 20, when the foolish and rebellious who were also physically afflicted and even near death because of their sin, they cry out to God in their trouble and say, he sent, it says that he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. So his word is is healing. It delivers. And God uses his word to sovereignly accomplish all that he wishes to, comparing how the rain and the snow will not return to heaven without watering the earth so that it will seed and sprout and provide seed to the sower and bread to the eater. He says in Isaiah 55, 11, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. I love (laughs) Psalm 23, Uh, excuse me, Psalm 29, verse 3, 3 to 9. I love Psalm 23 too, right? Who doesn't? But this is not that. This is Psalm 29. When I I was reading this uh, this week, I was like, oh, this is good. Just listen. How is this for God's word as a descriptor of his person and power? It says, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. In verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. Love that. Let's ask another question. If we believe that John wrote this gospel, as we talked about last week, somewhere between 80 and 90 AD, 
and he had full knowledge of the other three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, realized too at that time, Paul has not only gone on those three missionary journeys, Paul has actually gone to be with the Lord. The church has been firmly established. So how might that have affected John's decision to call Jesus the Logos? In other words, what did the church know and believe about Jesus that John would feel comfortable referring to Jesus as the Word? They would have to have some understanding of why John was using that term. And indeed, it would seem that it was actually a perfect term that encapsulates much of what Christians would have understood about Jesus at that time. Theologian D.A. Carson summarizes this well when he writes, In short, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son, end quote. Now, what's interesting is to be reminded of John's audiences and how they would have understood logos. It would have been, again, a perfect term, one, for the Greeks, as they understood this word in the sense of human reason, human reason which seeks to attain universal understanding and harmony along with divine reason, which, which the Greeks believed was revealed through a divine ruling force that governs and reveals through the cosmos to humankind. So Jesus, presented by John as the Logos, would have personified the Greeks' understanding of human and divine reason in a way that we presume would make sense to many Greeks. And then for the Jews, well, they would have understood Jesus as the Logos, the Word, in the way that we just talked about in the Old Testament, where he is. Uh, we see the Logos um, presenting the Word of the Lord in his power and attributes. So in this sense, it really was a win-win for John to use this term Logos for Jesus. Let's dive a little deeper and consider our second headline here. The Word in the Beginning. The Word in the Beginning. Let's put this in the form of another question. When did Jesus become the Word? In the beginning was the Word. Now, the obvious question is, is, well, what did John mean by the beginning? Is he talking about the beginning of his book? Is he talking about the beginning when Jesus was born? Is he talking about the beginning as in creation back in Genesis 1? Or is he talking about something else? Well, verse 3 will affirm that this beginning is at the time of creation. It's no coincidence that John uses the same wording 
um, in Genesis 1.1 that was used there when he's, uh, Moses wrote, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we read that and we understand that God is the one doing the creating, according to Genesis 1.1, and Jesus, we now know, is there. If God created the heavens and the earth, this means that God existed before creation. Let's just run with that just for a, a couple of minutes here about God existing before creation because it will ultimately be important to us. When God said to Moses, I am who I am, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This speaks of the pre-existing and eternal nature of God. As John records in Revelation 1 and verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. Or as the four living creatures of Revelation 4.8 say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. Or Psalm 90 and verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Or Psalm 93 and verse 2, your throne is established from of old, you are from everlasting. And these are yet other ways that God expresses the fact that he has always eternally existed. And I know, friends, this is is a bit of a mind bender, isn't it? Because we think, well, 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 but how did God come into being then if he's, you know, from before creation? I mean, surely someone or something must have created God. Nope. No, he has just simply always existed. Friends, if God was created by someone or something else, he would not be sovereignly in control or all-powerful because there would be an authority over God, an authority ultimately that would be calling the shots. And if that were true, based on what he has told us in his word, then that would make God a liar and, frankly, untrustworthy. Here's, an, here's another mind-bender, another weird one to, to think about. It's just a little rabbit trail, but I just couldn't resist. This is, this is really interesting. A.W. <laughs> Pink, in his classic work, Attributes of God, he writes about God's solitariness, which goes hand-in-hand hand with his eternal pre-existence. He writes, quote, There was a time, if time it could be called, When God, in the unity of his nature, though subsisting equally in three divine persons, dwelt all alone. In the beginning, God. There was no heaven, where his glory is now particularly manifested. There was no earth to engage his attention. There were no angels to sing his praises No universe to be upheld by the word of his power. There was nothing, no one, but God. 
and that not for a day, a year, or an age, but from everlasting. During a past eternity, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing. End quote. Isn't that just kind of, it tripped me out to think about that this week. Back in John 1, 1a, in the beginning was the word. Now there is, there is something that John is emphasizing here, namely that same pre-existing eternal nature now of the word. Let me, let me draw your attention to a bit of Greek grammar that is quite significant. This would normally be in the time of a trial where we would have a special witness come up from uh, the, the Greek realm of things. Uh, that is not me. I need some uh, helpful resources here when, when I'm diving into the, uh, the Greek. But this is, it is significant and it's important because you see this word was, in the beginning was the word, this is our verb, and it's followed by three more wases, right, in those passages here, verses one and two. The verbs there are all in what we call the imperfect tense. And the imperfect tense is important because it always describes something that happens in the past. Furthermore, it is an ongoing action, meaning the imperfect always describes something that is continued, repeated, or habitual. So imagine that after church today, you boarded a time machine, and you were taken back to some time in the past. And when you exit the machine, you, you look around and you're in the middle of a field, and it's during the medieval times. And, and in the field, you see farmers all around you harvesting their crops. They've got sickles and they've got rakes and they're doing the harvest. Here's the thing. You don't know when they started their work. And you don't know how long it's going to go on for. All you know is that the work was in process when you arrived. And then when you get back in the time machine and you come back to the 21st century... Hopefully you make it back okay. Uh, then you give your report and you say, farmers were harvesting their crops. It's as simple as that. Jesus was in the beginning. Now we're going to talk more about what he was doing there when you showed up in your time machine, okay? Just a few minutes, few minutes. Right now we're going to press on to our, our third heading here, which is the word with God, the word with God. We see, verse 1, that the word was with God. Now remember, we've just learned that God eternally existed. And now we understand that Jesus was with him. John also writes in 1 John 1 and verse 2 of Jesus in eternity past as being with the Father. In John chapter 1, verse 1, he is with God. And not only does this signify a face to face, intimate communion with 
the Father, it also demonstrates Jesus' eternal pre-existence with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God. Notice John doesn't say that the Word was created by God, because along with the Holy Spirit, He has always just existed. Jesus attested to His eternal um, existence when He said to the Jews in John eight fifty eight. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He doesn't just say, well, I was born or I even existed, but I am. You might remember when Judas and the mob came to arrest Jesus, and Jesus asked them who they were looking for, and they said, Jesus the Nazarene, he said to them, I am. They drew back And fell to the ground, the scripture says, because of that name, I am. Jesus was pulling out the big gun, his pre-existent eternal name, and it dropped them to the ground. In Hebrews 13 and verse 8, Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever, referring to eternity past and eternity Future, as Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17 and verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So, friends, there is no doubt of his pre-existent eternal nature. It can't be refuted. Turn, to, turn with me to 1 John. Keep your bookmark there and let's jump back to 1 John towards the back there. Really, right before uh, Revelation, you have Jude, and then you have the First John, Second John, Third John. We want First John right at the beginning, chapter one, verse one. This is also written by the Apostle John shortly um, after he wrote his gospel. At least that's what we would would believe. Uh, it was an epistle, so it was a letter. And though we don't know precisely precisely who it was written to, it was. Uh, likely written when John was at the church in Ephesus, writing to then the other churches there of Asia Minor, of which John was ministering to. Look at chapter 1, verse 1, and listen for some of the similarities with the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. He says, What was from the beginning, let me just put in parentheses here, uh, uh, here referring not to eternity past, but to Jesus' earthly ministry and the preaching of the gospel. That's what he's talking about with this beginning. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, yes, in eternity past, we might say, and was manifested to us, right? He he became a human being, a person, what we all just celebrated with Christmas. Verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 
Friends, we understand from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, that when creation was happening, the Word, Jesus, was already there with God. And again, we might want to ask, so what was he doing? you got to hold that thought a bit longer. We're going to move on to our fourth heading. The Word as God. Continuing on in our text back in um, John 1 and verse 1. And the Word was God. This is one of those Emerald Lagasse moments. Bam! There it is. The hammer has come down. This is the big kahuna. This is the big truth. John's opening statement, friends, contains a bombshell. The courtroom erupts and, you know, craziness. Judge banging on the gavel. Quiet down. Order in the court. Order in the court. Jesus is God. This is the the whole premise of John's book, friends. This is it. This is his number one argument. The whole of his gospel, the whole of the book of John should be read in light of this first verse and more specifically even this first phrase. Know this, reader. The words and deeds of Jesus are the very words and deeds of God. God incarnate. If this isn't true, then friends, this book is blasphemous. This book is heresy. And of course, there are, there are many other places in Scripture where we are shown the deity of Christ and the fact that He is indeed God. In Revelation 19, 13, it says that when Jesus returns from heaven on His white horse to judge and wage war, that His name is called the Word of God. Elsewhere in John, Jesus says to some unbelieving Jews, I and the Father are one. And we know that he was talking about him being God because in the next verse they do what? They pick up stones to stone him because they understood that he was equating himself to be with God. And in their minds, that was blasphemous and heretical worthy of death he then says to the same people in john 10 38 believe the works so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and i in the father and before jesus healed the paralytic whose friends had lowered him down through the roof that was like my all-time favorite bible story as a kid you know when they break apart the roof they saw it open you know and then drop him down and land him in front of jesus because the room is so packed and they can't get their paralytic friend in there and jesus says to the man friend your sins are forgiven you and then the scribes and the pharisees replied Who can forgive sins but God alone? To which Jesus responds, Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you, or get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. The point being, by Jesus himself, is that, yes, 
I am indeed God because, yes, you're right. Only God can forgive sins. In Colossians 1 and verse 15, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And in Philippians 2, 6, uh, that, that he existed in the form of God. Paul, writing to Titus, says that believers are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the gl- glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews 1 and verse 3, we read that he is the radiance of his glory. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the Father's glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power when he had made purification of sins, right? Because again, who can forgive sins but God alone? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We jump down to verse 8, and it says, but of the Son, he, the Father, says... Your throne, O God, he's quoting Psalm 45 and verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. God the Father acknowledging the Son as God. And indeed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all a part of what we call the Godhead of the Trinity. All are God in essence, different in function. That is to say, they each have a role to play, but yet they are all 100% God. And as Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, putting them all on an equal playing field. So Jesus says the word, and the word being God means that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus, as the word, friends, is the divine self-expression, God's self-revelation through his Son. This takes us to our fifth and last headline point this morning. A summary of the word that we see in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. You say, well, wait a minute. Isn't that basically what John just said? So why does he repeat himself? Parents... Why do you repeat yourself? (laughs) For emphasis! Hear this! This is important! John wanted to drive these profound truths home in a crystal clear way, emphasizing the fact that the Word is His own pre-existent eternal person, as well as the fact that He is there with God, in an intimate way, at creation. Now we get back to that question we've been wanting to answer. So what was Jesus doing there with God at the time of creation? What do you think? Creating! Turn to Colossians chapter 1, friends. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians uh, 
Just a tremendous book. <clears throat> like Philippians, it's just hugely Christological, right? It just, it just teaches us, especially in the first two chapters, some amazing doctrinal truths about Christ and who he is. And then you get to the last two chapters, and it's all about now that you have this incredible knowledge of Christ, how are you to put that into practice in your daily life? It's just an amazing book. Here the apostle writes in, in Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 15. We've, we've read this verse already. We're going to read it again. It says, he, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Let me just uh, interject here that that is him being the firstborn of all creation is signifying his authority over all of creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Again, referring to Jesus, the son. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. It's interesting because back in Genesis 1 and verse 26, it has God referring to this plural us, doesn't it? When he said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And we, we now know from other places in scripture that this us would be father, son, and Holy Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit is there included because in Genesis 1 and verse 2, what do we read? But the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Again, friends, remember, remember that, that those, these are imperfect verbs, right? They, they happen in the past, continuous. We don't know when they started. He was in the beginning with God. Back at the beginning of time, when God created the heavens and the earth, Jesus, as part of the Godhead, was already there. And he was creating. That is what he was doing. He was there creating with the Father and with the Son. Before we close up for this morning, <coughs> excuse me. One thing I want you to be aware of with these opening verses is that they are sometimes controversial. Surprise. There is some controversy that sometimes surrounds them, especially if you've had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door. Jehovah's Witnesses who don't believe that Jesus is God, but rather, and here I quote briefly from John Ankerberg and John Weldon's terrific The Facts on Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that Jesus Christ was the first creation of God, even the archangel Michael. They believe that the archangel Michael became Jesus in human form when he 
when he came back to life, they don't believe his physical body resurrected, but that he became again this, this angel Michael. They believe that Jesus had a beginning and was actually a creature of God. You might be thinking, but gosh, I, don't they, they use a Bible, right? I mean, I thought they believed in the Bible. What they believe in is their own New World Translation of the Bible. You see New World Translation on a Bible. It's a Jehovah's Witnesses translation of the Bible, which frankly is filled with errors, including multiple mistranslations of the Greek. But know that if you get into a discussion with one of these folks, they usually are well-versed with their arguments. And if you want to take them to John 1.1 and point out, see, it says that the word was God, they will immediately object and they will say, ah, ah, ah. In the Greek, there's no definite article in front of God. So really, it should be translated a God, and read, and the word was a God. This is incorrect. It's incorrect for a number of reasons that, frankly, we just don't have time to get into right now. But rest assured that there, though there is no definite article in front of God there in the text, it does not mean that the noun God is not definite. And indeed, it most certainly is. Is. In fact, there is a Greek rule of grammar that indicates why, in this particular instance, God is definitely definite. That's really all you have to say. At that point, what you want to do is you, you say to them, here's the thing. I encourage you to repent and believe in Jesus of the Bible. And you just calmly, politely call them to repentance. And, and you can show them other texts, but that's, that's, they're going to have answers to a lot of these things, right? And you just, you just give them the gospel and call them to repentance and give them the gospel and call them to repentance. And usually what happens, uh, the minute you call them to repentance, they shoo, gone. <clears throat> I have a New World Translation uh, up in my office that I, I pulled out to look at some of this stuff this week. There's some other wrong translations in there of the Greek. Another, for instance, is uh, in John 8, 58, where Jesus says, uh, we had read it earlier, before Abraham was born, I am. Uh, The JWs change I am to I have been. Allowing for pre-existence, but not allowing for Jesus being God. Rest assured, friends, in John chapter 1, verse 1, John was not talking about a God, little g, or some God, or as some like to translate it, some God-like qualities. He was talking about Jesus as the Word being the one true living God, the maker and creator of all things, the God of the Bible, and you can take that to the bank. So what do we do with these awesome, amazing truths that we have mined out this morning, that we have heard come up in this opening courtroom statement? For some of you, you may need to repent of your sin and believe in the Word 
Lord Jesus Christ. You need to believe that He indeed is God and because of that, He could live the sinless life that you and I just cannot live and thereby become the perfect sacrifice for your sin to appease God's wrath. He did so by dying on a cross. His blood shed, his body broke for you because payment had to be made. He went into the ground dead for three days before he resurrected to eternal life in body. Physical resurrection was here on this earth for some 40 days before he ascended up to sit at the right hand of his father where he now is interceding for us on our behalf. And so friends, if that is you, I beg you, I implore you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Call out to him, cry out to him, Tell him that you are a sinner in need of salvation and you believe Jesus to be your Savior. For the rest of you who have believed, I pray that this passage will encourage you or has encouraged you in your faith and what you believe about the word that Jesus, like the Father, has always existed and that Jesus and the Father have also been in close communion with one another for all eternity. And that while being God, Jesus is also a distinct person as part of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Same in essence, but different in function. Of course, Jesus' function, as I just said, was to come to earth and to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. I also pray that this passage will help you to know why it is that Jesus, as the Word, can forgive sins and can therefore guarantee you eternal life because He's God. I also hope and pray that this passage will help you with your apologetics, being able to defend your faith. Not all of the folks out there will be the Jehovah's Witnesses who kind of have all these arguments. But what a great passage to take people to to demonstrate that Jesus is indeed God. And I I pray that along with um, the defending of your faith, you will be able to defend just the gospel truths that you have learned and will continue to learn about Jesus. And, and, And lastly... This is not an exhaustive list, but may this passage just serve to lead you to worship and, and bring you to your knees, friends, in humble adoration and praise for who Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, Oh, we thank you, Lord, so much for these wonderful truths that we have been able to to see with our eyes and know in our hearts, Lord, the truth of this short but very sweet passage. We pray for any that need to put their faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior. And Lord, we just give you all glory, honor, and praise. It's in your Son's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen.
Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.